great church fights. He documented cases of just how contentious, how hostile church members can become. In fact, ask any pastor who's been around the block a time or two, and he'll tell you that ministry is a contact sport. It's sad when the church becomes a cage fight. Yet Titus, not just Leslie Flynn, could have written the book, Great Church Fights. For he was sent by Paul to pastor an ornery church on the island of Crete. In describing the Cretans in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul quotes a local author who characterized his own people as always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Not very flattering. And Titus had been asked to pastor the Cretan church. Obviously a church full of cranky people. Here's the question that prompted Paul's letter to Titus. How do you pastor, how, how do you oversee rambunctious people. The book of Titus expresses one certainty. To deal with difficult people, strong leadership is essential. In these three chapters, Paul condenses the instructions that he communicated earlier in his first letter to Timothy. He provides Titus a crash course in effective spiritual leadership. Verse 1 is the author's introduction. Paul a bondservant of God. Remember, slavery in Israel was used to pay off a person's debts. Often a slave ended up serving a kind and benevolent master and therefore lived a better life in his master's house than he was able to achieve on his own. In response, sometimes these freed slaves were forgo their liberty to remain in their master's household. In fact, Exodus chapter 21 tells us that in such cases, the slave would go to the door of the master's house, and before the city magistrates, a sharp awl was driven through the lobe of his ear. He was pinned to his master's door. And that pierced ear forever identified that person as a bond slave, or as Paul puts it in verse 1, a bond servant, literally a love slave. Paul considered himself a love slave of Jesus. At first, he came to Christ because he owed the Lord an enormous debt he could never repay. But the longer he served, the more he realized he could do far better in God's house than he could ever do on his own. Paul was pinned to the door of a kind, benevolent master. What about you? Are you a love slave of God? Well, Paul was also an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word translated apostle, it means sent out one. Paul was sent out by God to share the good news of Jesus according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. The elect, of course, are the handpicked of God. But evidently, they still need to have faith. You know, salvation is both God's choice and our choice. You might wonder how that reconciles, but the Bible detects no contradiction. And here, Paul defines what real faith looks like. It's a sincere, it's a serious acknowledgement of the truth, and it harmonizes always with godliness. In essence, the faith that saves us is also the faith that changes us. 
The New Testament knows nothing of proclamation without transformation. And then verse 2 tells us that our faith is in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested His Word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Notice here we're told something that God cannot do. He cannot lie. A study I recommend to you is to go through the Bible and create a list of all that God cannot do. James 1 verse 13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone, or He Himself tempt anyone. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, God cannot deny Himself. He can't violate His word. There are some acts that God cannot do, and one is to lie. This is why you can always take God's word to the bank. What God promises, He's faithful to perform. And then Paul addresses his letter to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. As Paul did with Timothy, he refers to Titus as a son in the faith. Paul was a spiritual father to Titus, a mentor. They had known each other for nearly 20 years. Paul and Titus first met on Paul's missionary journey to Galatia, his first missionary journey. Titus was a Gentile, and when Titus returned to Jerusalem with Paul and entered the temple, this became a flashpoint of controversy for the legalists. The Jews tried to force Titus to be circumcised, but Paul, he stood up for his friend. He refused to buckle. Paul knew that rituals and rules have nothing to do with a right standing with God. God forgives us because of His grace. God accepted Titus through faith in Christ alone, and so did Paul. Well, Titus continued to minister with Paul over the years. Along with Timothy, Titus became a faithful troubleshooter. They were Paul's messengers among the churches. In fact, Titus was with Paul after his appeal to Caesar Nero on his voyage from Caesarea to Rome. When Paul's ship stopped off at the island of Crete, a little southeast of Greece, Titus stayed on to minister to the church there. During Paul's second imprisonment, we know that Titus joined Paul in Rome for a time. He ministered later in Dalmatia, but eventually Titus returned to Crete. The church historian Eusebius, he tells us that Titus pastored the Cretan church into a very old age. Apparently, it's possible to even grow fond of difficult people. Well, verse 5 reminds us that Titus, why he was dispatched to Crete. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Now, I'm sure you realize that there are no such thing as perfect churches. And if you think you find one, please don't join it. You'll ruin it. Every church has things that are lacking. We all have our shortcomings and our deficiencies. And it's the pastor's job to constantly be taking spiritual inventory. When folks inform me of some deficiency in our church, usually I'm one step ahead. I agree. I'm looking for chinks in our armor. A pastor, an elder's job, is to shore up our weaknesses as we build 
on our strengths. Verse 5 adds to Titus' job description. He's to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. In Acts chapter 6, deacons were selected by the people of the church, whereas elders were always chosen by the existing elders. Paul does this in Galatia in Acts chapter 14. And in the next few verses, Paul lists the qualifications of a pastor slash elder. And you'll notice this list to be similar to 1 Timothy chapter 3, proving that God's qualifications for leaders are the same in all churches. Timothy pastored in the huge urban city of Ephesus. Titus pastored on a remote rural island called Crete. And yet the leaders in both locales should be of the same high caliber stuff. The qualifications begin in verse 6. If a man is blameless. In essence, if there's nothing hanging over his head, if there are no outstanding warrants for his arrest, it's not that he's sinless, but he's owned his errors, and he's made amends, and he's done his best to repair the damage. He's also the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. He doesn't have his eyes on the sisters of the church. His heart and his eyes are loyal to one woman. And having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Again, not that his kids are perfect, but neither are they out of control. Neither are they running wild. He's not afraid to discipline his kids when they defy or rebel. And then verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. A church leader needs to realize that the church belongs to Jesus. We're just stewards. We're caretakers. We're custodians. Each church is God's church. Once a salesman came to town looking for the local church of God. He asked a resident if he knew where the church was located. The man answered. He said, well, there's a church down on Main Street, but it belongs to a couple of rich cats that keep it afloat. And there's a church over on Maple, but it belongs to a stubborn old grunt that runs the show. And that church down on Elm, yeah, but it belongs to a family that founded it. No, I don't think any of the churches around here belong to God. What a sad commentary. When an elder or a pastor acts as if they own the church, there's a huge problem. Church leadership exists to represent God and to carry out His intentions. Well, the qualifications continue. Not self-willed. In other words, no personal agendas. Not quick-tempered. Church leaders need patience since people require patience. Not given to wine. As a believer, it is your liberty to drink alcohol. As long as it doesn't cause you or your brother to stumble. But a leader should be willing to give up some legitimate rights for the greater good. It's a privilege to be a leader in the body of Christ, but that privilege comes with a responsibility. The men at the helm make important decisions at the spur of the moment, and they can't afford a cloudy judgment. Admittedly, opinions differ here on whether the phrase, not given to wine, requires total abstinence or extreme caution 
But there's no doubt it's intended to limit the elder's use of alcohol and warn him of its dangers. Here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we've chosen to embrace the spirit of the phrase, and we ask our pastors and leaders, our elders, to forego their liberty to drink for the good of the church. And then he goes on, not violent. You don't want an elder to be violent. You have a fisticuffs at the elders' meeting. That's not good. And since the elders handled the church finances, not greedy for money applies. But hospitable, he says. They should be willing to open their heart and their home to newcomers. They need to be lovers of what is good, sober-minded, that is level-headed, just or fair and holy, certainly. The term, means, the term means reserved for God. That's what it means to be holy. And here's how you spot it. It's a man who's willing to give stuff up to spend more time with God, to be more accessible for service, to be a better witness. Well, an elder should also be self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Notice, a leader in the church should be able and willing to confront the enemies of sound doctrine. Thus, he's not afraid to go toe-to-toe with the problem child. Pastor Titus needed help. A pastor can't be the only one who takes a stand and who promotes sound doctrine. He needs other men who also are clear in their doctrine and not afraid to take a stand and not afraid of confrontation. Verse 10 says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. Understand, there are two types of insubordination. There is implicit insubordination and explicit. Implicit and explicit. In other words, if you entertain criticism of the church and do so in saying, oh, I'm just being a sounding board for these people, without sounding back that their criticism is wrong and uninformed and unfair, then you're giving implicit approval of what's being said. You're becoming a party to the rebellion. I've read, for a virus to remain in your body, it has to have a host cell. The virus takes root in that cell. It provides its shelter and nourishment, and from there it spreads. And the same is true with a bad attitude in the church. It, too, finds a host cell, a person or persons who may not totally agree with the attitude, but they tolerate it. And without realizing it, the host cell provides shelter and nourishment for that bad attitude to enlarge and to spread. Paul says idle talkers and deceivers are forms of insubordination. And then verse 10 tells us that the source of the problems in the Cretan church were coming especially from those of the circumcision. Jewish traditionalists, legalists, were undermining God's liberating grace. Paul tells Titus boldly, verse 11, their mouths must be stopped. Wow. Leaders can't be afraid of confrontation. 
See, these problems don't just disappear on their own. When a church member becomes contentious, the men in charge need to steer them back or kick them out. Difficult people have to be discipled or disciplined. Paul says to Titus, their mouths must be stopped. For if allowed, these legalists will subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. If there's no leader who stands up for what's right, folks will come in and preach what sells. In the absence of strong leadership, people with the money motive prey on the flock of God. In verse 12, Paul shows his knowledge of the rowdy crowd that Titus was trying to pastor. He writes, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, and here Paul quotes a a Cretan himself, the philosopher Epimenides, who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul agrees. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may may be sound in the faith. (laughs) These Cretans had a shameful reputation. They were antagonistic. They needed a sharp rebuke from their pastor. Friends, difficult people need strong leadership. It's interesting that Paul both knew and had read the Greek classics. Epimenides had written in 659 B.C., some 700 years earlier, and yet Paul was familiar with his work. Obviously, Paul saw a value in educating himself in the culture and in the thought of the people he was trying to reach. And yet there's a balance here. For in verse 14, Titus is not to give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Paul was aware of Epimenides' writings, but he didn't take his cues from Greek philosophy or from Jewish fable. He was true to God's word. He tells Titus to follow God's truth, not human speculation. And then Paul says in verse 15, To the pure... All things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. You know, all too often we determine what's right and wrong by how activities have been labeled by others. The group says it's wrong. So we assume that it must be wrong. But you know, labels don't always work. Right or wrong depends more on the heart of the person involved. Take, for example, the young man who comes to the church swim night. We rent the pool up at uh, Briscoe Park and invite all of the young people to come up for the big swim night. Is it good or is it evil? Well, it depends. If this young man's heart is full of love for God and love for others, well, then it can be great. It can be a fun night of fellowship. But if there's lust in this young man's heart, then hanging out with girls in swimsuits can be an opportunity for evil. You see, the point is, a pure heart keeps an activity pure, while an evil heart turns the same activity into something evil. Good or evil depends on our attitude. And then in verse 16, Paul warns of folks who profess to know God But in works they deny him 
being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Here is the poster child for difficult people. The poster child for rowdy church members. He's the hypocrite. He's the one who professes to know God, but in works deny him. Here's a guy who talks a good talk, but his actions speak so loud, you can't hear a word that he says. In chapter 2, Paul writes, But as for you, that is Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. In these next few verses, Paul is going to exhort the church to act like a family. And he points to four groups of people who make up every church, and he gives instructions to each group. First, the older men. One of these days, I'm going to get into that category. First, the older men. They need to be sober. Don't show up at the OFC on Friday morning tipsy. Be sober. Be reverent. Take the things of God seriously. Be temperate. Be moderate in your habits. Don't be excessive. Be sound in faith, in love, in patience. In other words, be a good example. And then verse 3 addresses the older women likewise. And while we're on this subject of older folks, by the way, how do you know you're getting older? Here's the list for you. When you get out of the shower and you're glad the mirror's fogged up, you know you're getting older. When you go for a haircut and the barber asks, why? When you find TV ads for hemorrhoidal cream interesting. You're not laughing. Why don't you get with me, okay? When the phrase getting a little action means the prune juice is working. You know you're getting older. And then last, as you pick up items off the floor, you ask, anything else I can do while I'm down here? You know, actually, actually, older people are one of the greatest forces for good in the church. They have wisdom. They have some free time. And they have experience that the rest of us can use. The older believer may be retired from employment, but there's no such thing as retirement from spiritual service. I've heard older folks comment, Well, I served when my kids were younger. Now it's somebody else's turn. That's not a godly attitude. We should appreciate the older saints, but they should eagerly want to serve. Well, Paul tells Titus to exhort the older women that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or gossips. And not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. Notice it's the job of the older women to teach the younger women. Too many churches have set their pastors up for failure by not taking Titus chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 seriously. For when a pastor counsels a younger woman on an ongoing basis... Dangerous dynamics are set into motion. An unhealthy attraction can develop in both the heart of the woman and in the heart of the pastor. This is why the older women, not the pastors, 
should disciple the younger women. Our pastors will talk to a young lady once, maybe twice, but if it's going to be an ongoing counseling situation, we're going to refer that young lady to one of the older women in the fellowship. And the older ladies need to teach the younger ladies to love their husbands, to love their children. You know, it's interesting, when a woman first gets married, she thinks both come naturally. But not so. Not when the husband gets old and fat and the kids become teenagers. Loving them is a little bit more of a problem. She's got to learn to love her family. Not simply as she wants to love them, but as they need to be loved. The younger women also need to be discreet. That is, they need to be appropriate in both their conduct and conversation. The younger woman needs to learn when to take initiative and when to wait on her husband. She needs to learn when to comment and when to remain silent. And then chaste also is on Paul's list. It means purity in mind and heart. The younger women should also be taught to be homemakers. Once a little boy was asked if his family had a prayer before dinner. He replied, nah, we don't have to. My mom's a really good cook. Ladies, are you a good homemaker? The Greek word means a keeper or a guardian of the home. Paul wants to make sure that younger women order their lives in such a way that it puts them in a position to manage the affairs of their family. No woman should be so busy that she puts her family on the back burner. Of course, this doesn't mean that a woman can't venture out of the home to earn some money for the family. No more than it means that a husband, whose primary duty is to provide for his family, can't help his wife clean and manage her home. Marriage is certainly a team sport. We learn in Proverbs 31 that the virtuous woman is both a mother and a successful business person. She's industrious and ambitious, but her chief assignment is to manage a peaceful and orderly home. Let's all remember, home is the most important place on earth. Home is where life makes up its mind. It's a family's refuge from this world. A stable home makes for stable kids and a steady husband. Thus, a lady who neglects her home and allows chaos to rule is out of God's will. It's the older Christian ladies who should teach the younger ladies to be good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? That the Word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, this might not be the most popular observation going around today, but it's nevertheless true. When a lady refuses to submit to her husband's leadership, it casts a cloud over God's Word. Understand, in marriage, God assigns roles to both spouses that speak powerfully of His relationship with His people. How thoroughly we've absorbed the Christian way of life is reflected toward the biblical roles, how seriously we take the biblical roles of husband and wife. The husband is supposed to love his wife and lead in the relationship. That wife is supposed to let him lead and submit and encourage his leadership. Ladies, let me ask you a question. If little green Martians 
suddenly landed in your backyard. And they said to your kids, Take me to your leader. Would the kids take them to mom or to dad? A godly wife lets her husband lead. And then verse 6 says, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, or literally clear thinkers. Men, if you want your wife to follow you and trust in your decisions, you can't be impulsive. You can't be hot-headed and driven by emotions. You've got to be level-headed. Always aim carefully, men, before you pull that trigger and decide to take action. The young man's list continues. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Young men need to develop a good track record. They'll later build on the strength of their reputation. The pattern of good works they need to build should include in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. You know, the measure of a man's integrity is the gap between what he believes and how he actually lives. Is that gap in your life broadening or is it shrinking? Every man wants to be respected, but the wise man lives respectably. And then verse 9 tells us, exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters. To be well-pleasing in all things. And what was true of servants in Rome is true of employees today. Let the exemplary life begin at work. He says, not answering back. Don't be a smart aleck. Don't be insubordinate at work. Respect authority. Don't buck it. And then he says in verse 10, not pilfering. Did you know statistics show that American businesses lose $13 billion every year to shoplifting. $13 billion. But employee theft, pilfering, costs an astronomical $50 billion. Pilfering costs us four times as much as thievery. Hey, one out of every 11 Americans is guilty of shoplifting. Somebody out here is guilty. One out of every 11. Three out of four have stolen from their employer. Just because you're not paid what you think you should be doesn't entitle you to self-appointed perks and favors. Taking what doesn't belong to you is stealing. Instead, employees should show all good fidelity. They should be honest and trustworthy that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And I love this idea. That we can adorn the doctrine of God's truth. That we can give the gospel color and beauty and pizzazz by living lives transformed by Jesus Christ. And then verses 11 through 14 are powerful verses. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Like a surprise! Grace appeared suddenly. We were drowning in sin, and grace became the first responder. You know, there's an African proverb that highlights God's grace. 
that we're like a turtle on top of a fence post. If you're a Christian, you're like a turtle on top of a fence post. A turtle can't climb to the top of that post. There's no way it can jump or fly to the top of a fence post. The only way you'll ever see a turtle on top of a fence post is if someone reaches down, picks up that turtle, and does for it what it can never do for itself. Someone else has to put it there. And that describes our salvation, does it not? God in Christ has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. We're all like turtles on top of a fence post. You see, grace goes against the human grain from an early age in many arenas, most arenas. We're measured by how we perform, but grace makes God's favor free of charge. And once we've received God's grace, it becomes our teacher. Paul writes of Professor Grace teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purity for Himself, His own special people, zealous for good works. What's the intent of God's extravagant grace? It's to make for himself a special people, a distinct people, a world, a people distinct from this world, zealous for good works. Always looking and longing for the coming of Christ. You know, grace should change everything about us. How we live, where we look, who we serve. Have you learned the lessons of grace? Well, in verse 15, Paul tells Titus to be bold and brave, to have some backbone. Remember, difficult people require strong leadership. He says, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Well, chapter 3 reminds us that though God wants us distinct from this world, we still have an obligation to it. For we're citizens of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And it's our job to obey both the laws of the Lord and the laws of the land. Paul tells Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. You know, a lack of submission to government officials has the same effect as a wife's unwillingness to follow her husband. It undermines the gospel. How can we expect our friends to submit to an authority they can't see? A God in heaven if Christians won't submit to the human authorities that we can see. He says, remind the church to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. Boy, the fellowship of the body of Christ should be a gossip-free zone. We need to also be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Oh, it's hard to get the big head if we remember what we were before we came to Christ. And in light of the rap sheet that Christ has expunged, let's walk in humility. Let's show the same patience we've been shown. Verse 4. 
But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Again, we enjoy the kindness and the love of our Savior due to His mercy, not our merit. Once a former basketball star from St. John's University, he died. At the pearly gate, he was asked if he'd done anything that might exclude him from heaven. Well, he confessed. He says, once in a game, I took a shot at the buzzer, and the ball went in, and St. John's won. But I was looking right at the clock, and I saw triple zeros before I shot the ball. And rather than tell the truth, I just kept my mouth shut. And we won a game we should have lost. Well, the gatekeeper of heaven, he responded. He says, ah, he said, that's no big deal. Come on in. The player said, wow, thanks, St. Peter. The gatekeeper replied, I'm not St. Peter. I'm St. John. You, you get it? I'm St. John. Yeah. Tough crowd this morning. The truth is, it's not good works that save me, and it's not my evil deeds that exclude me. Salvation is determined by faith in the love and grace of our Savior Jesus. Notice 2, verse 5. God saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Again, here's what saves us. Not what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. And what the Spirit does in us. It's what Jesus does for us and what the Spirit does in us. Jesus paid for our spiritual renewal. You know, when my boys were little, they would come home so dirty. Kathy wouldn't even let them in the house. She'd make them strip naked and she'd squirt them down with a hose before she'd let them in the house. You can pull a little boy out of the mud and you can wash him off, but that doesn't alter his desire to get dirty. You know, most folks don't appreciate the miracle of the new birth. Yes, the Spirit hoses off the dirt, but that's just the beginning of what God does in us. He also births in us new life. He cuts out that old nature that wants to get dirty, and He implants within us the nature of Jesus. As a Christian, I'm not only cleansed, I no longer want to get dirty. And when I do, I'm quick to repent. Well, verse 7 continues, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know what it means to be justified? To be justified means that God treats me just as if I'd never sinned even when I do. That's grace. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Titus needs to preach this message, and the church needs to hear it over and over. None of us is saved by good works, but we are all saved to good works. That's what happens when we receive God's grace. We want to say thanks. Well, Paul tells Titus to teach these things, for they are good and profitable to men. 
But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Avoid all these peripheral issues, he says. All this minutia. Stay focused on grace and godliness. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped in sinning, being self-condemned. In other words, if a man is continually, perpetually contentious, warn that man at first, but if your warning goes unheeded, then reject him, and if need be, eject him. You know, it's been said, a troublemaker is a person who rocks the boat, then convinces everybody else there's a storm at sea. The church at Crete was full of these types. You know, over the years, I've come to realize that a mark of spiritual maturity is the ability to identify what's important and what's not. What's worth fighting for and what's not. I love the old saying, a bulldog can whip a skunk. But is it really worth the effort? I mean, there are arguments that I can win. But is it really worth the outcome it will provoke? What good is it to win an argument if in doing so I lose a brother? This, though, is what a difficult person doesn't get. There are people who delight in pushing buttons and just stirring up arguments and causing dissension. This is the person who harms our harmony. And Paul's remedy for this contentious person in the church is simple. It's straightforward. You warn the guy twice, and if he doesn't change his way, you send him on his way. Paul concludes his letter with some personal notes. He says, verse 12, When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. Nicopolis was a city on the Greek mainland. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Greek Isles, beautiful place to spend the winter, trust me. For I have decided to spend the winter there, send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. Zenos, the lawyer. Paul's hanging out with lawyers. It's sad how folks like to pick on lawyers. Poor lawyers. I've heard it said, it's 99% of the lawyers that give the rest of them a bad name. Zenos was a good lawyer and a pal of Paul's. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Here's how you maintain an effective witness for Jesus. You do good works and you meet urgent needs. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. At times, all of us have to deal with Cretans. Let's remember, difficult people require loving but strong leadership.